everybody. My name is Dr. Talia Marcajani. I'm a naturopathic doctor in Ontario with a focus in mental health. This is the Good Mood Podcast, your source for all things uh, holistic health and mood related. And today we're going to talk about rewiring your anxious brain. This episode is based on the book called Rewire Your Anxious Brain how to use the neuroscience of fear to end anxiety, panic, and worry by Catherine M. Pittman, PhD, and Elizabeth M. Carl. And so anxiety is something that we talk about a lot. Obviously, it's it's probably the most common mental health condition. A couple episodes ago, we had an episode on obsessive compulsive disorder, which I would say is under the anxiety umbrella. And anxiety, you know, I would say is a, is a condition of chronic fear. We all experience anxiety and we all experience fear. It's wired into our biology. And, but the difference between anxiety and fear is that with fear, there is clear, present and identifiable threat. There's the presence of danger that we're responding to with anxiety. There's no obvious threat or immediate peril. Anxiety is associated with the sense of dread or discomfort, but there isn't an immediate danger present. There, I think it was um, Joseph Pizzorno, a naturopathic doctor, who said that depression and anxiety are essentially the same condition, but anxiety is an outward extroverted expression of depression, which is more internalized. But essentially, there's this sense that something isn't right that something's wrong. And with anxiety, our body is mobilizing and trying to fix that problem or responding to that problem, but there isn't an identifiable actual problem for it to respond to. So most people experience anxiety. And the problem is though, and it becomes a mental health condition when it starts interfering with your daily functioning, when it starts getting in the way of your dreams and goals and your ability to find happiness in life. And so what we're going to be talking about today, I've talked about anxiety a lot. I've interviewed um, people about anxiety. I have a YouTube video about anxiety, a presentation that I did on some root causes of anxiety. So you can check that out. But today we're going to focus and we'll address a lot of the naturopathic interventions for anxiety. I'll, I'll breeze through them though, because I've gone into more detail on them in other podcast episodes and also in my course, in my different courses that I run that you can check out. Today, we're going to mostly focus on identifying two main types of anxiety, according to this book. So in the book, Rewire Your Anxious Brain, they identify amygdala-based anxiety and cortex-based anxiety. In other words, more of like a fight or flight type of anxiety and a worry-based anxiety. And we're going to focus on this process of neuroplasticity, which is the ability to change and rewire your brain using your thoughts and behaviors. And so this is, you know, we, we're, we're typically used to solving the problem of mental health conditions with a medication, a very passive approach. But one thing that you can think of with, with, with medications or other interventions that focus on the biology of mental health conditions is they loosen the gears or give us water wings to allow us to enact the behaviors 
that ultimately rewire our brain and create different patterns and different responses. And that is what neutralizes and heals us from these conditions. So there's two types of anxiety, amygdala-based anxiety and cortex-based anxiety, according to this book, Rewire Your Anxious Brain. And one is sort of like top-down, like the cortex sits at the top of our brain, and the amygdala is a deeper, older brain center. So you can think of it as like top-down, thought-based, worry-based, or bottom-up, more like body-based, fight-or-flight, nervous system-based anxiety. And already, if you have very polarized anxiety, like if you have very amygdala-based or cortex-based anxiety, just me stating those differences may be giving you like an aha moment. You might be thinking like, oh my gosh, okay, I need to learn more because I definitely have more of the worry type of anxiety, or I definitely have more of the body-based anxiety. So let's learn more. Let's dive right in. So we're going to start with the amygdala. So an amyg- the amygdala is like a little um, center of the brain. It's a deep brain center. It's associated with our fight or flight response, our sympathetic nervous system. So we have our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous system that are branches of the autonomic nervous system. We can't control this nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system uh, enacts the fight or flight response. The parasympathetic nervous system associated with our vagus nerve is associated with the rest and digest or safe and social or possibly the shutdown response. So when our sympathetic nervous system is activated, it it, it's, uh, requires the amygdala to get activated. We get a rush of adrenaline, which is more of a fast anxiety response. And then over time, if we are experiencing more chronic anxiety or chronic stress, we have elevated levels of a hormone called cortisol. In our amygdala, we have something called the lateral nucleus. It receives information from the outside world, sights, smells, sounds, and it feeds that information to the central nucleus of the amygdala, which activates the fight or flight response. And this is nonverbal. So there's no story or necessarily like a verbal awareness of this experience. And the central nucleus is associated with panic attack symptoms and panic anxiety. So when this central nucleus of our amygdala activates, we feel a pounding heart, we we tremble, our stomach might turn in knots, we might hyperventilate, we might freeze, we might be sweating, we might have tense muscles, dilated pupils, that creepy crawly feeling, that adrenaline rush feeling. So our amygdala is where memories are stored, implicit, nonverbal, and emotional memories. They're not necessarily conscious. So if you have a memory that plays in your mind like a movie, or if you have a story you can recite, that's not really where, that's not what, what the types, that's not the type of memory that's um, associated with the amygdala. With amygdala-based memories, our conscious brain, our our cerebral cortex is sort of left out of the loop. It's not really engaged. And so there's no chance for us to form images and stories and those kind of associations. The amygdala is purely emotionally based. And the amygdala is not all bad. It stores, so first of all, your amygdala is your protector. So its main goal is to keep you safe and not necessarily happy. 
it stores, there's these biological um, fears that might be wired, pre-wired into our amygdalas from when we're born, such as fear of snakes, heights, angry faces, insects. These things may be biologically ingrained in the amygdala. It explains why babies are scared of heights, but they're not scared of cars. But certain experiences, like if you were burned by a birthday candle or bitten by a dog, will be wired into the amygdala and an associative fear will be formed. It's a million-year-old structure. It creates powerful, locked-in emotional memories. And the goal of the amygdala is to keep us safe and to relate this safety to the context of our lives. Right. So, you know, we have these things like snakes and insects and things that might have killed us hundreds of thousands of years ago. Now we have cars and we have like cigarettes and we have sharp objects. And so we have these things that weren't necessarily biologically wired into us that we need to start to form fears around, possibly if they're threats to us, to our safety in our current environment. The amygdala doesn't just store negative memories. It also stores um, positive memories. So you smell a waft of perfume that reminds you of your grandmother. That's also wired into the amygdala, positive associations as well. But the, the lateral nucleus of the amygdala creates these emotional memories based on experiences from your sensory world. And these might trigger emotions such as love, happiness, or discomfort, fear, and dread as a result of these experiences. So for example, in the book, Rewire Your Anxious Brain, they use the, um, the, the story of a man who was in the passenger seat of a car when he got into an accident. And now when he sits in the passenger seat of a car, he experiences feelings of immense dread and fear. And so he only ever feels comfortable driving a car and sitting in the driver's seat. And this is an association that his amygdala created is being in the passenger seat somehow was associated with the car accident, even though we know if we think about it, that it really had nothing to do with it, right? There was some other causal factor, but the amygdala learned that and created an association of where he was in the car that that created this sort of causal link to the car accident and there's no logical memory of that fear so all this patient experiences is a feeling of dread and discomfort when he sits in the passenger seat and he can kind of trace back what happened but there's no memory or thought associated with that that he experiences as as connecting those two things it can be very hard to identify triggers that stimulate the amygdala. So examples of amygdala-based anxiety are when your heart starts pounding in certain situations, or you want to avoid certain situations without consciously intending to do so. You can't relax or let your guard down in a certain type of situation. You might experience a panic attack without being able to locate what you were worried about or what you might be panicking about. There's really no thoughts associated with your anxiety that you can pinpoint. You might all, all of a sudden feel strong urges to escape. You might feel angry for no apparent reason. You might experience random muscle tension and difficulty breathing for no apparent reason in certain situations. So with amygdala-based anxiety, it's very much about the body and not necessarily the mind being activated or aware of what's happening or what's being triggered. There's no logical thread to follow. Our amygdala creates neural, neuronal connections, very powerful and strong ones. Neurons that fire together, wire together. 
And this creates associational memories. So this is like, think of Pavlov, Pavlov's dog and the Pavlovian response. So you know the story of Pavlov, right? So as a professor, he would ring a bell and feed dogs. And when the dogs were fed, they would salivate. And after a period of time of, of, of repeating this process, ringing a bell, feeding the dogs, experiencing salivation, he could ring the bell and get the dogs to salivate without the middle, without the middle player, without the food. And so ringing a bell would elicit salivation in the dogs. And really a bell has nothing to do with salivation. It was just a trained associational response. And so if you were, for example, bitten by a dog when you were a kid, all dogs potentially will create this feeling of dread or fear in your body when you see them again. And these are called triggers. So triggers can be events, objects, sounds, smells. They can be totally unrelated to the thing that happened. And yet they can activate the amygdala's alarm system as a result of this association-based learning. So somebody who experienced trauma, and I won't get into examples of what that type of trauma might be. It could be any type of trauma, big T or little t trauma. Imagine that there was a traumatic event that happened and a certain sound was playing on the radio or a certain song was playing on the radio at the time of the traumatic event. When you hear that song again, even though it had nothing to do with the negative event or the negative thing that happened, you might start to experience fear and anxiety. Another example of this, like when I was a kid, I used to eat frozen corn, which is like gross, but it was so delicious. I loved frozen corn. And I had a stomach bug at one point in my childhood, probably around the time I was eating some frozen corn. I don't think the corn had anything to do with the symptoms I experienced, which were like nausea and vomiting. But even now to this day, if I think of frozen corn, even talking about it, I start to feel a sense of nausea as if my amygdala associated the frozen corn with the vomiting and nausea. Same thing for me goes with these Lipton noodles, <laughs> Lipton noodle soup. I had food poisoning around the time I was eating a lot of Lipton noodle soup like 20 years ago. And even the thought of it creates this nausea in my body. And you might have a food like that. So sometimes you can recognize triggers when you have strong dislikes or likes for things for no apparent reason. But these amygdala reactions, they're not logical. They're emotional and they're automatic. They're experiential. They occur outside of conscious awareness and therefore there's not really an ability for us to reason with them or to explain them away or to use logic to get rid of them. More examples of amygdala-based anxiety are where your heart pounds for no reason. You are at an event with people and all of a sudden you just want to go home even though things are are logically going fine. You don't feel in control of emotional reactions. You get sudden rushes of anxiety. You feel panicky for no reason. You have a hard time identifying what triggers your anxiety, uh, have a hard time identifying what you were thinking around the time of panic or anxiety. It might be hard to control your breathing. You might have stomach issues. You might experience random nausea. You might have more of that body-based anxiety. You might sweat for no reason. You might feel on edge for no apparent reason. You might feel aggressive and irritable all of a sudden. You might experience going from zero to a hundred where it comes to aggression, rage, anger, anxiety, fear for no reason. 
your mind might go blank, unable to focus when anxious, unable to come up with a response when you're being yelled at or attacked by somebody verbally. It's hard to distract yourself when aroused or anxious. You draw a blank when you're anxious. And maybe during a test or some sort of speech or performance you have to give, you draw a blank and you can't remember what you learned. So these are all examples of amygdala-based anxiety. And we'll talk about how to rewire the amygdala if this is the type of anxiety you primarily experience in a second. But I want to talk about anxiety that originates from the cerebral cortex next. So our cortex interprets sights, sounds, perceptions, and turns them into meaning and memories. This is where we have story. The frontal lobe of the cortex specifically is involved in executive functioning, planning, initiating responses, decision-making. And the cortex can be a source of anxiety because our frontal lobes anticipate and interpret situations which can lead to anxiety or worry. So the cortex-based anxiety is very worry-based versus the body-based anxiety from the amygdala. So the worry is worry is a cortex-based process that creates thoughts and images that provoke a great deal of fear and anxiety, even though nothing is happening in your environment that justifies or warrants the anxiety. Like nothing dangerous or alarming is happening that makes that that would um, sensically trigger the fear response. There's no tiger to run from. There's no danger to escape from. The cortex can create anxiety from processing and observing sensory information, such as sights and sounds. So imagine you hear a loud noise. That input is sent through a brain structure called the thalamus, which is the relay center in your brain, and it goes to the amygdala. And there, the amygdala processes that experience and triggers an anxiety response. You might jump or you might run. The difference between cortex-based anxiety, though, because all anxiety really, the, the anxiety response, the fight or flight response is a product of activation of the amygdala. But the difference between amygdala-based anxiety and cortex-based anxiety is that you're aware of the input causing the anxiety when it's coming from the cortex. You're like, oh, I heard a loud noise and I freaked out. Versus amygdala-based anxiety that's purely more automatic. Like all of a sudden you jump and you're not exactly sure what happened. Maybe it's because a song played on the radio or something that ne doesn't necessarily elicit that fear response in a logical way. Worries and distressing thoughts are produced in the cortex. And the amygdala can be activated to produce an anxiety response. So the amygdala is the thing activating the anxiety response, but the cortex is the thing triggering the amygdala when it comes to cortex-based anxiety. So when you worry about something without a specific input, like your brain comes up with scenarios, like example, you're out with your partner, your baby is with the babysitter, and all of a sudden you're just coming up with scenarios and worrying about the baby and thinking of all these things that could be going wrong with the babysitter, even though nothing has happened. Like if you're the kind of person that's like, I haven't heard from the babysitter, something might be wrong, <laughs> then you might be experiencing more of that cortex-based, worry-based anxiety versus the person that gets a phone call. Well, if you get a phone call and um, from the babysitter and the immediate thought you have is that something happened to your baby, that's also cortex-based anxiety based on interpretation of a sensory input. So cortex-based anxiety is connected to something called cognitive fusion. 
Cognitive fusion is when you believe in the absolute truth of mere thoughts or feelings. So it's possible to have erroneous, illogical, or unrealistic thoughts or to experience emotions that don't make much sense. However, we can rigidly believe the things that our cortex feeds us and take them seriously without examining them too closely or challenging their validity. When you believe every thought and feeling that comes across your consciousness, this is cognitive fusion. So cognitive fusion is when the interpretation of something. So your phone rings while you're out with your partner and your baby's being babysat and your immediate thought is, oh my gosh, something happened to the baby versus like the babysitter's just calling to figure out like where the microwavable popcorn is or something like that. So when it's interpretations that are causing you to experience anxiety, you experience things like the tendency to expect the worst. You might focus on flaws in your appearance. You might take comments personally. You might have trouble accepting your mistakes, really dwell on your mistakes. You might have a hard time saying no to people, really worried about people's reaction, wanting to people please. You might worry that you'll never find something if you're, if you've lost something, like I'll never find it. Um, you might take all suggestions as criticism. You might feel overwhelmed by setbacks and want to give up these kind of things. So the response is much bigger than the actual event or situation or sensory input that you've received. So our cortex has two um, hemispheres. We have our left hemisphere and our right hemisphere. The left hemisphere, and both can produce different types of anxiety, cortex-based anxiety. So our left hemisphere is more dominant for language. It's the analytical part of the brain. This is where we have like actual worry and verbal rumination. And the word rumination, it comes like from cows, like ruminants, right? So it's like this idea of masticating in your mind, mulling over problems, relationships, possible conflicts. In Chinese medicine, the spleen is responsible for digesting our food and turning that food into energy, but also for digesting our thoughts. So if you think of this, like a cow is chewing and its four stomachs are digesting its food and, and, and turning grass into nutrients for the cow, same thing is happening with our thoughts. Like we're processing all this mental information and we need to extract the nectar, the juice from it. And yet we might have a hard time doing that if we have a lot going on in our minds. So just like if your stomach's really full, you might feel like food is just sitting there unable to get digested and integrated. The same thing is going on with mental rumination. So we always say like students suffer from spleen sheet efficiency because their spleens are so saturated with information and this can cause digestive issues. So rather than, so rumination, it, it includes this intense focus on details. We're like masticating and processing and, and overthinking things. And rather than leading to a solution, the circuitry that produces the anxiety actually gets strengthened when we ruminate. So it's like you're running a car over and over treads in the dirt, creating deeper and deeper ruts every time you go. So the more you have that thought, the more ingrained that thought becomes in your brain's circuitry. So anxious apprehension is a product of the left hemisphere, anticipatory anxiety. So this is repeatedly analyzing situations over and over and over in the mind. 
these persistent worrisome thoughts are rehearsed over and over and they become difficult to dismiss. And so that book brain lock, I talked about two episodes ago in uh, that episode, it's not me, it's my OCD. It talks about how these ruminations can start to lead to obsessions or OCD when they become ingrained in our brain circuitry. There's a homeopathic remedy called gelsemium that's prescribed for that anticipatory anxiety. And there's also this gut connection to it as well. So it's involved in anticipatory diarrhea and anxiety and fear. So you're about to give a speech and you feel like, you know, you got a poop or you have loose stools. So that's gelsemium. So there's definitely this connection with rumination, apprehension, left hemisphere anxiety, and the effects it has on our gut and digestive system. So examples of this anticipatory left hemisphere anxiety are you rehearse potential problem situations in your head. You're going um, through scenarios over and over again. You're thinking about the past and how you might've recorrected that. You have these conversations in your head, future conversations. You are, you have a tendency for negative thinking. You tend, tend to ruminate on a problem. You come up with solutions for multiple possible future scenarios. You spend a lot of time focusing on that. You tend to dwell on difficulties. You have a hard time think, stopping thinking about things that make you anxious and so on. So this contrasts with our right hemisphere, which is our nonverbal, holistic, and integrative part of our brain. So the right hemisphere is more involved with pattern recognition, faces, and it identifies and expresses emotions. It's the more artistic part of the brain versus the analytical left hemisphere. My Stroke of Insight is a really interesting um, book to read. And there's a TED Talk on the same topic where the this researcher experiences a less a left hemisphere stroke where all she has access to is her right hemisphere and she describes it almost as like a psychedelic experience where she's just there's no analytical part of her brain activated she's just all one with her environment her surroundings it's this idea of like oneness and connection imagination visualization but the right hemisphere can have a negative bias so that's where our inner critic comes from our inner voice or a voice that talks to you that might be different from your own frightening images coming from your imagination and the amygdala can be heightened when the right hemisphere creates frightening images so this is sort of like the bad trip in a psychedelic experience The right hemisphere is strongly connected to anxiety, more so than the left hemisphere. So a stronger right hemisphere is associated with more anxiety. And people with panic disorder have right hemisphere anxiety. Vigilance, this general state of alertness in which the environment is scanned for danger, is based in the right hemisphere. And this might be why people with more artistic, sort of like pattern recognition tendencies may have more of a connection with mental health conditions. We see that in our society where like more creative people also struggle with more um, negative bias, depression, anxiety, vigilance. So examples of right hemisphere anxiety are where you picture potential situations in your mind, where you're very attuned to the tone of people's voices. You imagine scenarios as if they're movies on a screen and they're negative. You imagine ways people might criticize or reject you. You imagine ways in which you might embarrass yourself. You have images of terrible events occurring. 
you feel very in, in, um, in tune uh, to what others are thinking and feeling like you can pick it up. Like you have this intuition, you don't, you can't quite explain how you know things and, and maybe those things, you know, are negative. You're watchful and sensitive to people's body language and you pick up on subtle cues and energies. And if you really relate to this, a good episode to listen to is um, the one on highly sensitive people with Dimpy Patel. So the cortex, it will create these interpretations of events. So for example, let's say you're coming home and you see fire trucks on your street and you immediately think my house is on fire and then you experience anxiety, right? So your senses see the fire trucks, your cortex interprets that as it's my house on fire. And then you're amig- and then it feeds that to your amygdala and your amygdala starts creating an anxiety response. When in reality, there's no information that that truck is actually related to you, but you make a cognitive leap, your cortex interprets the event and it comes to a conclusion. And then the anxiety is experienced based on that interpretation versus the actual sensory information you've received. So other explanations exist, right? That the fire trucks are responding to someone else's house, that there's a cat in the tree, something else is going on. But what happens is the cortex lands on the explanation that causes the most anxiety. And then it starts to run with it. So you might keep thinking like, I might've left the stove on and then you start getting carried away there. And there's, there's images that you are being fed by your cortex of like, oh my gosh, I have all this faulty wiring in my house. Or what about the candle? Did I turn that off? Did I leave the stove on? Um, And then you imagine maybe like your pet is trapped inside or who's home or, oh my gosh, my photo album's getting burnt. And then you start to run towards your house in a panic, even though there's no actual threat uh, or evidence of the threat yet. So that's interpretive anxiety. And anticipatory anxiety are expectations about what might occur. And this occurs in the left prefrontal cortex. So the left prefrontal cortex is also involved in planning and execution. And so we also anticipate in that brain area so that we can plan and execute actions when events are occurring in the real, when those events eventually occur in the real world. So it's like we're getting ahead of possible scenarios. And this is a a beautiful gift. It's part of our human consciousness that we can we can um, imagine scenarios occurring before they happen and therefore we can prepare for them. But it's also a curse because there's a risk that the anticipation overestimates the risk, the actual risk in the world, and that leads to unnecessary anxiety and unnecessary suffering. And so examples of this anticipatory anxiety, right, are that you ruminate over a potential conflict that might occur you go over conversations in your head, you're rehearsing things, you're constantly ruminating over how something might go wrong. You worry sick about something's months before it's going to happen. You, you feel with dread about something. You have performance anxiety. You overconsider situations in which there is a potential danger or illness that could occur. You think of solutions to problems that never occur and you spend all this time and energy on them and so on. And the amygdala responds to what we imagine just as it responds to real world situations, like things that are actually happening. So your amygdala will respond if a tiger jumps out of the bushes to chase you. But if you really spend time imagining a tiger chasing you and to the point where you believe it, 
that can also create anxiety. So imagine that you're home and you hear a loud noise downstairs and you start to imagine it might be an intruder in your house. And then you start to activate your fight or flight response. Once the amygdala gets involved in that imaginatory process, you start to experience the fight or flight response and you start to experience anxiety. So we have these two types of anxiety, right? These amygdala-based body anxiety. So that's where all of a sudden your heart starts beating and racing and you start to feel scared and you're not sure why. And then we have this cortex-based anxiety that's based on images, thoughts, anticipation, interpretation. So we have this verbal, story-based, worry-based experience that anticipates either imaginary events or interprets actual events and creates a cognitive leap, cognitive fusion that we believe, and that triggers our amygdala to experience anxiety. So one of them is very like body-based, right? The amygdala really comes from the body. There's no obvious explanation for it. And this is the person who's like, I just feel anxious and I don't know why this is happening. And cortex-based anxiety comes sort of top down, worry-based, thought-based, image-based. And it's like, we're very in our head. And this is, is quite connected to OCD because a lot of similar brain areas in cortex-based anxiety are lit up in OCD as well, like the or orbital frontal cortex. So let's talk about some solutions because there are different things that can help with either kind of anxiety. So for example, if you experience more amygdala-based anxiety, you're probably not going to get a lot of benefit from cognitive behavior therapy or CBT, which is one of the gold standard therapies, psychotherapies for anxiety and depression. But because it's all about rewiring your thoughts, if you're not aware, don't have a lot of thoughts, it's probably not the most appropriate therapy. When you experience amygdala-based anxiety, which is very body-based, and often results from a nervous system that's tightly wired, we need to take control of the nervous system and work with that. So what I do with patients is we're trying to calm down the nervous system and we're doing this from a behavioral perspective, a hormonal perspective. We're looking at like, what, you know, is cortisol amped up? You know, how can we bring that down? Are there herbs we can use? We're looking at nourishing and creating foundations to calm and, and support the nervous system. And so the foods or the, the macronutrients that we're looking at are particularly protein, eating a high protein diet, which helps to calm and co-regulate the nervous system. It, it, it sends a signal of abundance and satiety to our system, which can calm and ground us and healthy fat, which coats and soothes our nerves and prevents neurotransmitters, like prevents our cell membranes from leaking and creating some of that raw nerve type of anxiety. So I go into this a lot more in the last podcast about meat. And I also go into this in the podcast about cravings. I talk about blood sugar a lot throughout the different podcasts. And if you want to learn more, a great course to take is Feed Your Head, which is my nutrition course for mental health. And that'll give you all the foundations you need to know about how to eat for your nervous system. 
but things I might prescribe my patients are B vitamins and a, and a nutrient called choline. That's extremely um, important for stimulating acetylcholine, which calms us down, supports the vagus nerve and, and um, coats our cell membranes. And then also working with the vagus nerve. So bitter herbs are helpful. Nervines, which are herbs that, that calm the body. I might prescribe GABA, an amino acid that's calming. Again, we look at healthy fats. We look at cell membranes. We make sure you're getting enough protein and absorbing it. And so this, this nourishment, we might do things like Epsom salt baths. We might prescribe magnesium, which calms the amygdala. If you're deficient in magnesium, there's more amygdala activation. There's more of a tightly wired heightened nervous system. We make sure that you have enough iron and zinc. We help you focus on self-care activities, soothing the five senses, you know, calm lighting, soothing music, aromatherapy, we talk about co-regulation with other people and we talk about things like EFT, other vagus nerve stimulations. There's a couple episodes on the vagus nerve and some episodes on polyvagal theory to dive into, to learn more, but EFT tapping helps stimulate the nervous system, gargling, deep breathing. And we'll talk about breathing in a second. Um, exercise is all is also very important. So if your sympathetic fight, flight, or freeze system is activated, what it's trying to do is get you to fight or flight. It's get, trying to get you to mobilize, to get away from danger. So all these chemicals are surging through your bloodstream. And the best thing that can be done is to put those chemicals to use. So mobilizing. So aerobic exercise, which is like cardio exercise, it makes use of large muscle groups, soaks up and metabolizes those fight or flight chemicals. And it involves running, walking, cycling, dancing. You can even do whole body therapeutic shaking to just clear that tension and that, um, that activation from your system. And exercise reduces muscle tension. It reduces anxiety for four to six hours afterwards in as little as 20 minutes of exercise. So you go for a brisk 20 minute walk, you get a calming um, result of four to six hours or a calming state of four to six hours afterwards. Exercise produces endorphins, which are these feel good chemicals for your brain. And it calms the amygdala. It also increases neuroplasticity in the brain by producing a chemical called brain derived neurotropic factor or BDNF, which is like miracle growth for your neurons. So when you're doing some of this um, behavioral therapy and trying to rewire your amygdala exercise by boosting BDNF allows those neural pathways to change because it's, it's like, if you want to grow a garden and you add some fertilizer, you really make sure the soil is nourished. It allows that garden to grow much faster. Sleep is also extremely important for rewiring your amygdala your amygdala reacts negatively to a lack of sleep. It's one of the brain areas that's most negatively affected by lack of sleep, especially REM sleep. So sleep deprived people experience 60% more amygdala activation in response to negative images. And this was a 2007 study from UYOO et al. REM sleep occurs later in the night. So from 2 a.m. onwards, and that's the stage of sleep where dreaming occurs. And it's where memories are consolidated and neurotransmitters like serotonin are replenished in your brain. 
And research shows that more REM sleep equals a calmer amygdala. So yes, there is a sort of a catch 22 that if you're anxious, it's hard to sleep. And then if you can't sleep, you're more anxious. And that usually, you know, requires you to work one-to-one with a naturopathic doctor, work on sleep hygiene. There are some tips like a weighted blanket is important, a sleep and bedtime ritual, getting rid of blue light, dim lighting, two hours before bedtime, no electronics, making sure your bedroom is 18 degrees, using an eye mask to sleep in complete darkness. And there are some other strategies that can be helpful as well and certain supplements that can be helpful. Um, So for example, chamomile extract, so an ingredient in camel extract called apigenin. Um, so I'll usually just prescribe a chamomile tincture or strong chamomile tea to my patients. It has been, it's, it's a chemical or a compound of interest for helping with sleep maintenance. There's two types of anxiety, sleep onset anxiety and sleep maintenance anxiety. So if it's hard for you to fall asleep, you have sleep onset insomnia say insomnia or anxiety <laughs> sleep on. So onset insomnia is where it's hard for you to fall asleep. Maintenance insomnia is where it's hard for you to stay asleep. So if you're waking up at two to 4am, you're experiencing maintenance insomnia and maintenance insomnia is, is a harder thing to treat because there's a Pavlovian response associated with it. If you, if you suffer from this, you probably wake up or notice that you can wake up at the same time every night. And this is where, and that's usually the time when your brain is supposed to be in REM sleep. So you're experiencing more REM sleep deprivation that can really accentuate anxiety symptoms. So chamomile chamomile extract is a possible solution to that prolonged release melatonin, but working with a naturopathic doctor one-to-one to to sort that out um, could be really beneficial. Rewiring the amygdala um, involves breathing. So when you're experiencing amygdala activation, don't hold your breath. Deepening your breath reduces your heart rate and it starts to deactivate the sympathetic nervous system. And the type of breathing, there's many breathing exercises, but slow, deep breathing into the belly or diaphragmatic breathing is what you want to do to rewire and to calm your amygdala. When we're anxious and our amygdala is activated, we can hyperventilate. And this can cause dizziness, confusion, lightheadedness, this sort of derealization, dissociation. And we can correct this. And it's caused by a lack of carbon dioxide in the blood because we're over um, breathing oxygen. And we can correct this imbalance by using deliberate breathing to get the amygdala to relax. Deep inhales into the belly and long exhales where you feel your abdomen contract. Abdominal or diaphragmatic breathing, as this is called, gets our parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and digest nervous system to come online and helps us relax. There's also something called progressive muscle relaxation or PMR. And this is a, um, an exercise in which you go through your body limb by limb. So you start with your toes, your feet, your lower legs, and you tighten that area and contract it as tightly as you can. 
and then you relax it. And this has been shown to help reduce stress chemicals in amygdala-based anxiety. And it's actually been studied for conditions like PMS and PMDD and chronic migraines, chronic pain. Very effective. It can take about half an hour to get through your whole body, but essentially you're contracting, contracting, contracting your left toes, inhaling while you do so, and then exhaling and relaxing it. And then you do your feet, you contract and contract and contract and contract, contract your left foot and you relax. You might have to go through your body a couple times. It gets easier the more you practice it. But PMR has a lot of research behind it for being a helpful way to relax your body and to reduce stress chemical activation and amygdala activation in your body. When trying to rewire your amygdala based anxiety, you want to resist avoidance. So you want to avoid being in the freeze response. Now, what you actually want to do, so remember with amygdala-based anxiety, there's a sensory input that we're not even always aware of, which gets interpreted from the lateral by the lateral nucleus that feeds that information to the central nucleus, which is our panic center. So you can prevent the lateral nucleus from feeding the information to the central nucleus by engaging in more active responses to fear. And this involves, it's called switching to an alternate fear pathway and engaging in active coping. So this means do something when you're scared, anything at all. This is where exercise can be helpful, PMR, breathing, therapeutic shaking, something that creates mobility and allows the stress chemicals to be metabolized throughout the body and gives your brain the sense that it's doing something. Exposure therapy is the gold standard psychotherapy for amygdala-based anxiety. So in exposure therapy, you're teaching your amygdala that there's nothing to fear And this is an extremely powerful process to rewire the brain. So your amygdala learns very quickly and permanently to negative experiences, but also to positive ones too. So it's called systemic or systematic desensitization, where you stop being afraid of things because you have an experience that shows you that those things are not to be feared because nothing bad happens in their presence. And so first you you have to learn relaxation strategies, and then you start to approach feared objects or situations in a gradual, stepwise, systematic manner. I would say this should be done with a trained therapist because it can be quite distressing. I mean, the whole point of this is to feel fear. There's a great book called Dare that goes into this more where it says, if you are scared of something like going on a date or public speaking, something that's not going to like hurt you, then the best thing you can do is to do that thing is sort of embrace discomfort, especially where the fear of that thing is preventing you from achieving your goals, hopes, and dreams. So let's say you're a plumber who's afraid of spiders And so it makes you avoid going under people's sinks 
or looking at people's sinks because you're scared of finding spiders there. It's going to interfere with your job, your ability to support your family. And so confronting that fear of spiders will probably be helpful, beneficial thing for you to do. So the idea is like getting back on the horse that threw you or taking another wave after a wipeout. The worst thing that can do is staying with that negative experience or with that fear and, and avoiding. So how it works is you create a hierarchy for exposure. So for example, if you're scared of going to a mall and, or, and talking to somebody, like if you have social anxiety, you start to work through things. Like maybe I go to a mall with my friend and then I leave right away. Maybe I go to a mall by myself. Maybe I go to a mall and I'm wearing kind of a weird outfit. Maybe I go walk into a store. Maybe I go walk into a store and say hi to the, to the retail person. Maybe I ask them for help. So you work through the fears in a stepwise fashion. And you go and you, you tackle the situation until your anxiety drops to a four out of 10 or below. And this process is allowing the amygdala to learn through experience and is showing it that in these situations, nothing bad happens and that you can handle it. And this experience is powerful and life-changing because when you confront that situation, just like when you get bitten by a dog, it can make you afraid of all dogs. Confronting a situation that teaches you that you don't need to trust your amygdala always can start to help you take action in other areas of your life. It actually, it shows you that not only is that situation not a problem, but you are powerful and that you are courageous. And that allows you to confront other fearful situations with that same resolve and courage. So it's important to not leave the situation when your fear is high, because if you, if you flee in order to get relief, this will teach your amygdala that escape is the answer. And this will just increase future anxiety. So it's important again, to work with somebody because they have to help you resist the urge to flee and resist the urge to avoid, which will only solidify the fear that much more. Using benzodiazepines or anxiety medications is actually uh, counterproductive. So it actually prevents the amygdala from learning. It's important to feel the fear, which is the which is the thing we don't want to feel. But it's important to feel the fear in those situations because that fear starts to decrease, and we start to disconnect from that reality of the fear or the the importance of that fear, and our amygdala stops reacting. And likewise, you don't really want to have safety behaviors. So if you have like medications with you or a lucky charm or a safe person, or you're holding on to objects or wearing sunglasses, these things might be part of the steps. Like maybe you go to the mall with sunglasses first, and then you take them off. But if they're things that you're adding in, it can also um, undermine your hard work and prevent the amygdala from learning. And so a therapist will help you, you know, kind of manage the, the negative feelings that you fear, the fearful feelings and incur and support your self-talk. And so things like you talk to yourself and you say, expect my fear to rise, but I can manage it. All I have to do right now is stay, keep breathing. This won't last long. I'm activating my fear circuits to change them. I'm in control. The fear will decrease if I wait. 
I got this. That's I like that one. I got this. Like you got this. And so that is how to rewire the amygdala. So feel free to listen to that again, if you need to, or to um, look at some of the podcasts I have on polyvagal theory um, and some of the nutrient based podcasts such as, um, and also look at the podcast on the vagus nerve and look at the podcasts on dissociation and trauma that I've done with Ion, my friend, and look at um, the podcast on methylation cravings, which also goes into blood sugar and on meat. Those would be some good ones to check out if you want to learn more. Also OCD, because it, it goes into some behavioral therapy as well. So what about cortex anxiety? So this is the worry, anticipation, anxiety related to interpretation, to images, stories, narratives that then gets fed to our amygdala, which creates anxiety. So it's more of that top-down cognitive cortex-based anxiety. So how we heal this is with cognitive restructuring. So we're working with our thoughts. This is where cognitive behavior therapy comes in. This is the gold standard for anxiety, but it's really only going to work with cortex-based anxiety, not so much with amygdala-based anxiety. And cognitive behavior therapy, cognitive restructuring is where we use our thoughts to rewire our brain. So our thoughts can change our brain chemistry, and this can rewire our brain and heal anxiety if we gain some control over our thoughts. So allow us to do a little activity. I want you to humor me for a second. So imagine that you're walking down the street. You run into somebody that you know. You wave to them and they walk right past you as if they didn't see you. And so this is an exercise for mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT. Um, so I want you to think like, what are your thoughts? What's the first thing that comes into your head? What's your thought? How do you feel? What emotion do you feel? Sad, angry, confused. What body sensations do you experience? And how might you behave in that situation? Now, whenever I do this exercise, some people say things like, oh, I, I assume they didn't see me or, oh, maybe they're distracted, right? So that's more of like a positive interpretation. Some people are like, this person's mad at me. I feel anxious. Um, I, I feel shame and I walk with my head down. It's the interpretation of situations that causes anxiety. So when we do this exercise in a group, you write down all the various interpretations and you see that for as many people as there are in the group, there are as many interpretations. And so it's not the situation that causes anxiety. It's your interpretation of it. So CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, works to identify automatic thoughts. So it identifies a situation. What's the automatic thought? Oh, this person hates me. This person's mad at me. So it, it outlines all these automatic thoughts. And then you write down the emotions that you feel. And then you seek to find some alternate thoughts. Maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they're distracted. Then you work with CBT to find a more balanced thought. So this is done in something called a CBT thought record. You can download them online. There's, there's tons of examples of them. There's a book also called Mind Over Mood, which helps you work through this kind of thing. 
These thought records help us identify and take control of our thoughts, and they offer different interpretations for them. So our orbital frontal cortex is very active in this type of anxiety. We talked about this in the OCD podcast. It's not me, it's my OCD. The orbital frontal cortex is the part of the brain that lights up when monkeys, remember the monkeys that were pressing a red lever to get juice, which is rewarding. And they would press red lever, they'd get juice and that would activate their orbital frontal cortex. But when they press the red lever and got salt water unexpectedly, which they don't like, their orbital frontal cortex fires even louder and stronger, more intensely. So the orbital frontal cortex fires when we get an unexpectedly bad result. And so it's like a feeling of dread, a feeling of I've done something wrong, I've effed up. It's our worry center. It's located right above the eyes, behind the eyes. And so I find with my patients when their orbital frontal cortexes are activated, they're like, it's like their brain is hungry for the reason, right? It's like, what did I do? I screwed up. What did I do? Maybe it's because I'm this. And so this often where rumination could come in, obsessions come in. We're worrying, we're looking for something to focus on. We're looking for something that explains that dread and justifies that dread feeling that I did something wrong feeling. And so we got to calm this down, um, this part of the brain or recognize it as such. Uh, We might have tendencies like guilt, shame, perfectionistic tendencies, tendencies to worry, negative or pessimistic thinking, these can all be tendencies that affect how our cortex interprets things. It's like the lens through which we experience our world. If we have a shame lens and you see your friend walking down the street and your friend doesn't say hi to you, you're going to think I probably did something wrong that caused them to hate me. If you have a perfectionistic tendency, yeah, maybe it's like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't you know do this thing for them properly. And Um, If it's pessimistic, it's like something went wrong. So there's a lens through which we'll interpret things. And our orbital frontal cortex, when it's active, will look through that lens to identify what went wrong. It'll come up with an explanation and then that'll trigger our amygdala. And then this creates this anxiety, vicious spiral, circle, vicious cycle. So we want to practice, we talked about cognitive fusion, right? So cognitive fusion is the tendency to believe our thoughts like uncritically. So we just take our thoughts as facts. We want to practice cognitive diffusion, right? So this is uncoupling our thoughts from our reality. So we tend to assume that our thoughts are reality and we often don't question our assumptions or interpretations And we might not even recognize that we're creating an interpretation or an assumption and, and rather than cold, hard facts. So we might consider our thoughts are like cold, hard, like my friend hates me. And your friend's like, well, what happened? Well, they walked by, they didn't say hi. Your friend might be like, what? So we might take the, the interpretation as the cold, hard facts and forget that we're making an interpretation. So in a course called Landmark, we talk about facts versus stories what happened versus what's the story. So facts are things that occurred. Like my friend walked down the street and didn't look at me when I said, hi, it's things that were said and everything else is a story. The story is the glue that connects those facts, but that story is part of the interpretation. Like Brene Brown loves to say when she's like kind of caught in this cognitive fusion thing, 
usually related to relationships. She'll say the story I'm telling myself is, and that's a really helpful thing to say because sometimes when you're in a conflict with a partner and you, you, you're just steeped in cognitive fusion, it's helpful to say the story I'm telling myself is, and then what that does is create some potential for cognitive diffusion, some space between the thoughts and the reality. Call it differentiation as well. So the cortex is a busy place filled with ideas, feelings, stories, narratives, and they have many of these things have no basis in reality at all. And so psychologist Stephen Hayes says it is tendency, it is the tendency to take these experiences literally and then to fight against them that is the most harmful. And so cognitive diffusion is taking a different stance towards your thoughts, being aware of them without getting caught up in them, developing the ability to relate to thoughts at face value and, um, and to recognize them as experiences that you're having. Saying things like, hmm, interesting, I'm having a thought that I'm never going to graduate from this class. And so it's developing a sense of yourself that doesn't get lost in the thought process of the cortex. And in the OCD episode, we talked about the impartial spectator or the wise advocate that were discussed in the book Brain Lock with Jeffrey Schwartz, right? So having this sort of thing that's observing your thoughts as an outsider. When we start doing this, we can start to bring in coping thoughts or alternate thoughts. So this is, again, this is cognitive restructuring. So when we recognize that we're having a thought, like I'm never going to graduate from my class, we can watch that and we can bring in a coping thought to neutralize it. A coping thought should be something you believe that you could get behind. It's not like you look at yourself in the mirror and you think I'm ugly. And then you think, no, I'm the most beautiful person in the world. It's not like a positive affirmation. It should be something like, that you believe, like that kind of puts a different spin on it. So for example, an anxious thought is, it's no use trying, things will never work for me. A coping thought might be, I'm going to try because there's at least a chance that I'll accomplish something. An anxious thought is something's going to go wrong, I can feel it. A coping thought is, I don't know what's gonna happen, these kinds of feelings have been wrong before. An anxious thought is, I can't handle this. And a coping thought is, this isn't the end of the world. I'll survive. An anxious thought is, I'll never get through this. A coping thought is, I'm a competent person. And even though I don't like the situation, I can get through it. When it comes to our thoughts, it's important to understand this concept of replace, don't erase. So don't think of a purple monkey that is that has symbols in his hands and is clashing them. Don't think of it. So we obviously, you probably all now have this purple monkey with his symbols in your brains. So this is proof that we can't stop our thoughts. And a really great book to look into is called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, who talks about that, that narrator in your brain that's just constantly yapping. So we can only interrupt our thoughts and replace our thoughts. So it might be helpful to yell the word stop when you think of the monkey with symbols, but monkey's going to come back if you don't replace it. 
trying to stop a thought constantly reminds you not to think of it. And it activates the circuitry string, making it stronger. What we resist persists. Like I still have the monkey in my hand. I don't know about you. So you need to think of something else. So when you're thinking of this purple monkey with symbols, think stop. And now think of a yellow waterfall with crashing water. And on the edge are these dancing buffalo that are doing ballet wearing tutus. So yeah, monkey was gone for a second, right? So you have to replace the anxiety provoking thought with something that actually engages your mind and that becomes more likely that you won't return to the thought. And this was something, this is the refocus step in uh, brain lock. And so this is very similar, right? The brain lock steps, the four steps are very um, tied to this cognitive restructuring. And, um, and that's because OCD occurs in the cortex primarily. Instead of worrying, plan. So you might know the serenity prayer. Give me the serenity um, to accept the things I cannot change, to change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So what do you have control of and what can you do to plan for what you can control and what can you let go of that you can't, right? It's like, it might rain at the game. I can bring an umbrella and rubber boots and try to have fun if it rains. Um, I might hit traffic. I can, like, for example, I was in traffic. I was late for an appointment and all I could do was pull off to the side of the road, text the person that's probably going to be late, give myself a large buffer and then do what I could. I think I took a toll highway, weighed the pros and cons of that. And I was an hour late for my thing, but the person, it wasn't so bad. The person was aware and it was fine. So that's an example of, you know, planning versus worrying, trying to mitigate what you can control, finding an ability to differentiate what you can control versus what you can't. Mindfulness is extremely important and helpful for cognitive restructuring and supporting cortex-based anxiety. So mindfulness is the act of paying attention to the present moment with awareness, without judgment. So it involves watching the mind, maintaining that observer and witness stance, and to be able to disengage from the thoughts, feelings, and body sensations that you experience, and to create some distance from them. It's maintaining an openness and acceptance of what you're feeling versus getting caught up in the thoughts and the suffering of them. So mindfulness trains the cortex to lovingly and patiently observe your anxiety responses. It involves self-compassion. And if you go to selfcompassion.org, there's tons of great resources there. I've used quite a bit in different courses and with patients. And basically you're practicing being in the present moment. So to support the cortex, we focus on mindfulness and, and there's tons of resources for that. I have a meditation course on my um, Good Mood Project site. Check that out. I think it's $5. It used to be free. I think it's $5 now. And now nutritionally, we talked about nutritional uh, solutions to amygdala-based anxiety. We'll talk about some of the 
cortex-based nutrition things, very similar. So you need protein. We want to keep the, the cortex fueled to allow it to make decisions, to engage in cognitive diffusion. And it's important to get enough calories, enough protein in the day. Blood sugar is an extremely important component to this. So check out the cravings and blood sugar podcast. Um, the wisdom of cravings, I think it's called. Blood sugar it keeps our cortex fueled. And so when our cortex experiences a drop in blood sugar, we have a harder time processing our emotions and coming up with decisions and executive functioning. Our cognitive abilities decline. We feel more emotional. Our amygdala is sort of unleashed. And um, there's a condition called type three diabetes, which I'll probably do a podcast on where um, there is insulin resistance in the brain and this creates inflammation, um, a, a tendency and a risk of Alzheimer's disease or dementia and depression. So when our blood sugar is low, our cortex has a harder time coming up with coping thoughts and maintaining um, the impartial witness. And so to learn more, go to my mental health nutrition course, Feed Your Head, or look at the podcast, um, the, the Wisdom of Cravings. So dopamine is one of the primary neurotransmitters in the prefrontal cortex. And dopamine is involved in executive functioning and motivation and cravings in word recall, articulation, executing a goal, chasing after a goal. Um, and we can boost dopamine with eating enough protein. Cold therapy is helpful for that. Um, methylation is an important process and many of us are not good methylators. So we need more folate, choline and B12. So listen to my meat podcast for more on that. The last one, meat play love, it was called, we need to get active B vitamins. Um, and we need to be supporting our cell membranes with choline. These can all be helpful things to do. So there's way more info on the nutrition side of things in the, in different podcasts. Um, you can look at the methylation one too. So go through the archives, go through the different episodes of the good mood podcast and check some of those out to get more information. So in summary, how do you deal with your anxiety? Number one, practice relaxation, sleep, deep breathing, exercise to reduce sympathetic nervous system activation. Number two, support your body with nutrition, get enough protein, healthy fats, eat breakfast with protein, eat regular meals, emphasize proteins and healthy fats and not sugar and easy to uh, absorb carbohydrates like refined carbs. Number three, monitor your thinking for anxiety provoking thoughts, try to identify them and watch them. Number four, replace those anxious thoughts with coping thoughts. Number five, identify triggers and fears that interfere with your life goals. Like if you're a plumber and you're scared of spiders. <laughs> Number six, design exposure exercises that can modify your amygdala response to these triggers. Check out the book, Dare. Number seven, practice exposure exercises until you notice a decrease in anxiety and fear. And of course, you want to have patience and compassion throughout this process reach out to people like a naturopathic doctor, a therapist who is um, helpful in things like EMDR, which could rewire the amygdala or cognitive behavior therapy, which could rewire the cortex. 
and reach out to me. If you have questions, if you have comments about this episode, check out other episodes. We mentioned the wisdom of cravings, meet, play, love, the highly sensitive person podcast. We've talked about methylation. There's a couple of trauma episodes with Ion, my friend, and there's a couple of polyvagal podcast episodes as well to check out. Thank you guys for listening. Please like and subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, then subscribe to the channel, share this podcast with people to help them because we don't think of anxiety like this. We think of it as there's something wrong with us, that we have some sort of brain issue, that medication is the solution. That's like telling somebody who doesn't know how to swim that water wings will teach them. So medication might be helpful, but it's not going to solve the problem. And you can, you know, if you've tried medication, you know, it may just loosen the gears to allow you to cognitively rewire, but it's, it's not going to be the solution. And so there are many solutions to anxiety, but we, we need to engage in neuroplasticity and looking at some of the underlying causes that might be triggering our nervous system or resulting in nutrient deficiencies that might be depriving our cortex of nutrients and our brain of nutrients and looking at our, our triggers and our cognitive biases and our, uh, our cognitive fusion. So let me know what you thought of that episode and um, check out the other resources that I mentioned and have a great day. Thanks for listening.